From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Black bodies, brown bodies, women bodies are all seen as ways to protect and entrench the power of white men, period. But when I looked at my family, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, we go back to 1682. And at every single turn, we were on the underside of laws that were created in order to entrench, protect, and establish white men's bank accounts. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We are delighted today to welcome back to the show Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. She's a sought-after speaker, trainer, and consultant. She's written several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Longtime listeners will remember we talked about that book on our show a few seasons back. Harper previously served as Chief Church Engagement Officer at Sojourners, where she mobilized the church to engage campaigns on immigration reform and racial justice. Today we're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me, David. It is fabulous to be here with you today and with your listeners. Thank you guys for checking in. So I have been in conversations with you about this book for the last couple of years. And so I I have a little bit of (laughs) insight into the process through which this book came into the world. But I wonder if we could start there. If you could talk to us a little bit about how you came to discover this particular ancestor, Fortune Game, also known sometimes as Fortune McGee, and how Mm -hmm. her story began to be melded with your story. So my mom was the first person to discover Fortune as a person who might be connected to our family. She was looking on Jenny.com and found a listing of a genealogy for someone named Sarah Fortune, who had said her mother was this woman, Fortune Gay McGee, and Fortune's parents were Maudlin McGee and Sambo Game. And the reason why she stopped and thought maybe this could be connected to us is that Her great-grandfather's name was Fortune, Philip Fortune, her father's mother's father. And we hadn't been able to figure out how to get past the big hump of slavery with him. We couldn't find him or find anybody who was in the Virginia area on slave rolls with his age. So we were stumped. And then she saw that. And we began to research because they were from the same region in Maryland, but just right across the river from the Chesapeake Bay, from where Philip Fortune's family was. And so we began to research and we discovered this Fortune family and thought, oh my gosh. And it turns out that they at one point in the mid 1700s were moved by their indenturers into Virginia, into the same area where our fortune was. 
And we now have DNA connections that are pretty clear. There's at the very least, there's like a tangled web of DNA connections that are in maybe the third or fourth generation from Fortune. I think it's the third generation from Fortune. So we know that our connection is somewhere there. And we imagine, we believe that would be Fortune's grandson, Humphrey, was likely Philip's grandfather, great-grandfather. And Philip is my second great-grandfather, so there you go. (laughs) As you point out in your book, Fortune, when we go back into history, the population of the United States gets smaller and smaller, and the possibility of these kinds of connections grows greater and greater. So, you know, there, there may be a lot of Joneses right now, a lot of Harpers right now, but as we go back generation by generation, that shrinks and shrinks. But there are some significant aspects to this particular woman, Fortune Game McGee, that make her important not only in your family history, but in the history of African Americans in the United States as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when we discovered Fortune and I began to understand her time period that she was living in and I started to make these connections, she was born in 1687. 1687 was about 23 years after the passage of the very first race law in the, the second colony of Maryland, right? So Maryland being the second colony, the first colony was Virginia, just right across the bay. Virginia had its first race law in 1661, and it was the very first race law ever. Now, when I realized that in 1705, Fortune found herself standing in a courtroom, the judge deciding whether she was going to be indentured, enslaved, or free at the age of 18, I knew something's up here. Something's going on. It's not at birth. It's not earlier. And she's in court. Why is she in court? What's going on here? And the only reason we know about her, actually, is because she was in court and also because of the judgment that was made and the repercussions of that on her legal status after. So in order to understand it all, you have to go back into the context. In 1654, so we're going to go back there, 1654, Virginia, a woman named Elizabeth Key brought her case to the courts in Virginia. And she said to the court, I am a British citizen, but I am enslaved. She was a mulatto woman, a half black, half white woman. She was born to Thomas Key, who was a member of the House of Burgesses in in Virginia, and her enslaved mother. And English law said that you cannot enslave another British citizen. And British citizenship comes through the line of the father. So Elizabeth said, wait a minute, my daddy is a British citizen. Therefore, I'm a British citizen. Therefore, you cannot enslave me. And she said, wait a minute, your common law says you can't enslave another Christian. And my daddy had me baptized and recognized me as his child. And that's, I found out later, only because the colony forced him to recognize her as his child. That's a whole other story. So Elizabeth takes her case to court and wins. So because she wins, now there's this flood of other people in her same situation who take their cases to court and win. African-Americans who are half black, half white. Also Native Americans who are half Native and half white, who are all being enslaved by their fathers who are English citizens, and they all win. So by about 12 years later, 1662, the House of Burgesses, which is the planter class, they begin to see all these 
people flooding off their plantations, taking their cases to court saying, I'm out, peace, right? I'm a British citizen, you can't enslave me. And so what do they do? They had a choice at that moment. They could have said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna transition. We see this problem, we're gonna transition into being a true capitalist society where we will now give wages for the work and let those wages be you know, living wages so that you can actually then buy the products that we are selling, AKA tobacco and later on cotton and others, right? And we're gonna be a true democracy as in we're gonna, we're gonna do away with this hierarchy of human belonging and we're just gonna allow people to be citizens. They could have done that, but instead they didn't. They grabbed at their own power. In order to do that, what they did was they set this law into action. And this was the very first race law. And it said, if your mother is a slave, then you shall be a slave because we from henceforth are no longer going according to English law to determine citizenship. Mind you, here in this very first race law, there is the intersection between race, citizenship, and gender. All in that very first law. It's unteasable. They're all three inextricably linked. And so they said, we are no longer going to go by the English law, but now we're going to go by the Roman law of Partis, which places citizenship through the line of the mother. So now, if your mother is enslaved, then that means she's not a citizen. And because she's not a citizen, you're not a citizen, nor are any of your progeny or descendants to the thousandth generation and beyond, because they added the words in perpetuity, those two words which are what created race-based slavery in America, those two words, in perpetuity. Because up to that point, we had never had in perpetuity slavery. It had all been indenture, and at least indenture for this generation, but not necessarily the next. But now it's in perpetuity. Now, let me just take a moment and reintroduce you right quick. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. We're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Now, one of the things that I'm getting from these dates that you're giving us is we're talking about Elizabeth Key in 1654. That's 35 years after the first slave ship comes to America in 1619. So we're talking about the first couple of generations and this existing law they suddenly realized was going to be costing people a lot of money because they would have invested in these bodies and suddenly they would have to free the children of these bodies. Let's be clear, they bred these bodies. Yes. And suddenly they would have to free the bodies they bred. Yeah. And so they rearrange the entirety of the law so that the whole law now is ordered towards the maintenance of property and human beings as property. Now, when I say it, is that too harsh or is that right on the money? No, it's right on the money. And it's really important for us to understand because before this law, there was no legislated slavery. There was no legislated slavery before this law. Up to this point, it was only indentured, and anybody could be indentured. Irish, Scots, English people were indentured. Black folk were indentured. Native Americans were indentured. Sometimes they were indentured for their whole lives because their masters would, oops, I forgot to mark the point of your start of your indenture. So I can kind of keep you forever because there's nobody to, to enforce the reality that I need to let you go. That actually happened quite a lot. But even then, it wasn't legislated, a, a, a governmental legislated 
directed this first law. 1662 was the first time we did that. And two years later, they did it in Maryland. And Maryland is where fortune is born 23 years after that Maryland law. In Maryland, they did it for the opposite problem. Now, all law is created to solve a perceived problem on the ground. No law is ever created kind of in a vacuum just to say, oh, I like to live this way. This is what we should do. That's not the way they do it. It's, oh, there's a problem going on on the ground. We have to fix it. So what was the problem going on in Maryland? The problem they discerned in Maryland was not that white men were raping enslaved Black women, though that was happening, according to historians. No, instead, the problem they perceived was white women coming from like the Belfast area. They were Ulster Scots indentured or they were Irish women indentured, living and serving right alongside enslaved African men, falling in love with them and marrying them. And so it was the marrying of white women with enslaved African men that was the perceived problem on the ground. Now, why was it a problem? It was a problem because it hurt their egos. Hello, these women would rather be married to an enslaved man than to marry their own kind (laughs) in the colonial era. That tells you something about that own kind. Very violent people and not necessarily protective of their women. And you'll see why I say that. And it also threatened the racial caste system that, they had been developing through judicial law and also through common practice. So how did they solve it? They solved it by saying this. They said, if any white woman marries and has children by an enslaved African man or black man, then she will be enslaved to her husband's master until her husband's death. Her children will be enslaved in perpetuity. In other words, forever. Let's take a break right there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. She is the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. She's a sought-after speaker, trainer, and consultant. She's written several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, which we've talked about before here on our program. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap, and she's a sought-after speaker, trainer, and consultant. We've had her on the show before to talk about her book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It All. Well, in the first segment, we were talking about this ancestor of yours from several generations back, Fortune Game McGee. And one of the things that 
came out in that conversation was she's sitting in a courtroom back in 1687, and I almost get the mental image of a crosshairs moving, trying to catch her in its sights. Because what's happening in that courtroom is they're trying to fine-tune and adjust a law. She was born free, and they want her to be enslaved. And so they're trying to find a way to reverse engineer the law so that they can catch her in its net. Tell us about that. Oh, my gosh. Is that not amazing? First of all, the year was 1705 when she's in, when she's in that courtroom. She was born in 1687. Thank you. And so she's born to Sambo Game and Maudlin McGee. And the very first race law, as I just talked about in the last segment, was created, the first race law in Maryland was created to deal with just such a situation as they had, a white woman who had an affair with an enslaved African man. And so, and they bore Fortune. But the thing is, Fortune was born in 1687. That's six years after the law changed again. So the law had a few different iterations before Fortune was born. And there was one that just was incredibly fortunate for her because six years before she was born, they begged off of the whole, we're going to enslave white women thing and we're going to enslave their children in perpetuity thing. And that was because of this woman named Nell. They called her Irish Nell. So she came from Ireland, Ulster. You know, she was an Ulster Irish woman and she wanted to marry an enslaved man and she was good friends and also hired by an indenture of Lord Baltimore. So she begged Lord Baltimore to have the law changed for her. And he did. He got the law changed for her, but it was a little bit too late. She had already married this man. Her name was Eleanor Butler, actually. And the man's name was Charles Butler. And so she married him and ended up being enslaved by Charles's master. And her children were enslaved not in perpetuity, but until the Revolutionary War. So multiple generations later, they began to put more and more heinous laws in place, especially as technology advanced and more and more Black bodies came to Maryland shore. And then the power balance in terms of the demography began to shift so that there were more Black people in Maryland than there were white people. So white folks started to get nervous and they started to clamp down on those laws. And they began to be more heinous, brutal heinous, heinous. Like we can mutilate Black people and if they cross us in the wrong way. We can kill them if they cross us according to the law. So by 1705, the way that the law had shaken out was to say, okay, if a white woman bears a child with a black man and it is out of wedlock, then that child will have to be indentured for 31 years. If it is in wedlock, that child will be indentured for 21 years. That was what it shook out to be. So again, Fortune was born at a time when she should not have had to be indentured or enslaved, but they entrapped her in these new laws that came into force after she was born. And she's standing there in a courtroom in 1705, waiting to hear what's going to happen to her life, surrounded by white men who are now judging her entire future and all of her descendants' future. And what they determine is that because of her parents' identities, she will be now indentured post-haste until the age of 31. And it turns out, Two successive generations were also indentured, again, because of the laws that continued to change and continued to get more heinous. 
But the one thing that was always clear to me as I did this genealogical research and went into DNA is the reality that never were there ever any husbands or fathers noted on any of the genealogies. It was always women with children. And I was like, what's going on here? Are they in a brothel? What's happening? What's, I don't get it. And then I decided, well, just really to say, okay, well, let's just turn over every stone. Let's do a match for the indenturing family's surnames in my DNA. And it turns out they were there. So that's an indicator that they were raping successively, successive generations as a practice, likely raping their indentured servants in order to breed new free labor for another 21 years. So this is one of the things that is so astonishingly good about your book, Fortune, is that on the one hand, it reads like a detective story. We're trying to find the clues to build together this case of how these relations work one to another. You just mentioned, you know, there were no fathers listed in these genealogies, but you had a hunch that you could look into the families of the indenturers and you found plausible cases for the rape of the servants creating basically new slaves. So on, on one hand, you've got that detective story. On the other hand, you have this incredible political analysis. You already mentioned no law is ever made without there being a need that it's fixing. The whole notion of how fortune is sort of in those crosshairs, you're showing us how the American government learned to see people of color, and it changed over time. It changed you know, the old biblical thing, eyes to see, ears to hear, it gained different eyes to see. So maybe let's shift for a second to that political analysis. What are we learning about the way in which brown bodies, black bodies, non-white bodies are seen by the state as we read your book, Fortune? Yes. And let's add women's bodies. Okay. So especially nowadays, right? So black bodies, brown bodies, women bodies are all seen as ways to protect and entrench the power of white men, period. That's what I found. And I found it in every single generation. And that's what was so striking to me is that I never really thought of my family as being like a consummate American family, especially when you see pictures of what people consider an American family. It's always white people. But when I looked at my family, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, we go back to 1682. And at every single turn, we were on the underside of laws that were created in order to entrench, protect, and establish white men's bank accounts. And so everything from the first race law in 1662 and 1664 to the Three-Fifths Compromise, to Jim Crow, to the Native American removals, to the revoking of women's voting rights, you know, in the, around the time of the, or right after the Revolutionary War, believe it or not, like women did not have the right to vote under British rule. And we gained the right to vote right after. But then very soon after, like we literally had the right to vote in most of the colonies slash that became states right after the Revolutionary War. And then within 20 years, they were all gone. They took them all back. And I think they took them all back because women were women were probably more empathetic and probably were pushing on their husbands to end slavery. And they were like, nope, not going to do it. And the vote would have created some kind of parity between men and women in power and white men could not handle that. They were not willing to play fair. So instead, they took all the chips and they barred everybody else from having them in the game. And that's what I found. 
at every juncture. And then you go into the 20th century and you see that education is set up that way. Education and particularly free education is set up in a way that that depends on land taxes to be funded. Well, that was a, that was specifically done in order, that system was put in place in order to establish and protect and entrench white power in society because land taxes were immediately in the 1930s declared land was worth more if there were no black people living on it. So what if you're a black family? Your land is immediately going to be worth less. No matter, you could be a billionaire and your land is worth less simply because you are Black. And all of the land in your community, and especially if you live in a Black community, which was forced through redlining, then your community is going to be worth nothing, which means that your school gets next to nothing, which means that your education is worth next to nothing, which means that you then do not have the power, the ability to rise in society. So these systems, structures, laws, have been put in place since the days of fortune all the way through to right now. And right now I live in Philadelphia. I live one block from where my grandmother and great-grandmothers lived, where my mom grew up. I can see her junior high from this window that I'm sitting in right here. And I know that in this neighborhood, they literally one day came in and cut down all the trees in our community. This was a community that used to have a ton of trees, just as much as just above Washington Avenue in Philadelphia, the northern part of South Philly. There's, it's beautiful, Rittenhouse Square. Oh, it was so lush up there. This used to be like that, but they came in and they cut all the trees down. Why? They never told us why. It turns out because the Italian immigrants in the area, they said, we don't like the trees. We want to be able to lean out the window and say hi to our neighbors as they're coming down the street. Well, they were new immigrants. Black folk had already been here for multiple generations. They didn't ask them. They didn't tell them and said that we just lost all of our trees, which then, of course, increased our health disparities because there was no green space and no ability to filter the air. So from generation to generation, what I found in my family is that my family suffered, was on the bottom end, holding up the systems that were created in order to protect and entrench white male power. And this is one of the things that you say at a couple points in your book, Fortune, the immaturity of white men to be able to share at any point when we look at this through the history. And this is what I want to stress to our listeners is that this is not a rabble-rousing, firebrand kind of book. It is, it's told in a very patient tone. It is presented with a lot of historical detail. But at every point that you turn, the warp and the woof sort of in the foundation of this story is this white male power And it is trying to divest women and persons of color from any kind of franchise, any sort of agency. And now you're tying it into health disparities as well, the ability to control even the air that they breathe and make sure that it's clean air. And so this is such a powerful story, but it's also such a personal story. And because you and I know each other well, I'm going to share with my listeners that at one point, you and I were on a pilgrimage together around the Gulf Coast. And I was standing there at one point when you made a sort of key discovery in this mosaic of your own history. You were looking at a wall at the Whitney Plantation, and you realized that your ancestor, Sambo Game, probably that was the name that he was given at birth and that it wasn't a slave name. Now, I'm retelling the story in just 
broad strokes. If you could give us just a what it meant to you in that moment to have that connection standing on that particular land. That was amazing. We were on the pilgrimage that actually you can actually, anybody can listen to that pilgrimage and listen to that moment when that happens on the episode of Freedom Road podcast that is on immigration and the roots and fruits of basically America's addiction to imported labor, right? So we started at the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana and ended on the Texas border to Mexico with Mexico. Well, what was that like? I had been, up to that point, I had always thought that Sambo was his given name because I thought that was the case. I thought, Sam, you know, Sambo was taught to me as derogatory name that white men created for us and named us in order to denigrate us, right? So to say, if somebody is a Sambo, it means they're a suck up. It means they're, you know, a step and fetch it. It means that they're like not really a serious human being, right? That was, but it turns out there were a million Sambos because Sambo was an incredibly common name in Senegal. And the Senegalese in Senegal, it was Samba on the western coast of Senegal and Sambo on the eastern edge of, of Senegal. And that places Sambo game. It places him having been stolen from the eastern, most likely southeastern corner of Senegal, where Mali and Guinea and Senegal meet. And game, I later found out, you see it often on the census and in tax documents interchanged between game and GAM, G-A-M. And it hit me, GAM, Gambia, as in the river that they took him from, the river that his enslaving ship, the death ship that he rode here, set sail from, the Gambia. So Sambo, is a Senegalese name that means second son. And Gam is simply where he, where his last, where his feet touched African earth for the last time, Gambia. Now, when I saw that, when I realized that, I literally wept because I realized, oh my God, in that moment, now I know part of his story. I know that he was the second son. He was someone's second son. And his feet touched the earth around the Gambia River. And he was likely from that specific area. And it turns out, you know, now, lo and behold, Ancestry.com DNA has told me, yes, you have Senegalese DNA in you. And, and just enough that it's like, it's way far back that it came in. It's likely Sambo. And what amazes me about this moment is you had talked about how your original understanding of the name Sambo was a kind of caricature name. You said it's like a step and fetch it. And in in this moment, your ancestor, Sambo Game, went from being a caricature to being a flesh and blood person who walked the earth in a particular place and had a particular relationship in his family. That was such a powerful moment for me both to be standing there with you, but also you create those moments here in your book, Fortune, where you realize your own bodily connection to these people in these places. I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's actually, honestly, that's probably one of the most profound things that happened to me in the midst of writing and researching this book. By the way, the research for 
fortune took 30 years. It was a 30 year research project. I did not start thinking I was going to write a book. I start just trying to figure out who I am as a human being, as an African-American person. We just weren't told very much. And in the discovery process, I discovered that information about who we are was intentionally not collected, intentionally by law not collected in the colony of Maryland and likely in other establishing colonies as well. And the reasoning they gave in the law, it's right there in the law, was it's just not worth it. Like literally, they just said, it's just not worth it. And so, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like even free Black people, they didn't register the dates of their birth or death or marriage or anything. The only way that you got registered anywhere was either you sent, you were ended up in court like Fortune or you bought land. So there was tax documents, right? That's how you got your name somewhere in the history books. And I didn't know about our connection to fortune for the longest time. So I was just out there floating. You know, my closest relation was my grandmother and great-grandmother. And after that, it was Kizzy from Roots, right? And Chick and George, that they became my family because that was the closest thing I had to family story. So in the process of discovering Sambo and Maudlin and Fortune and, you know, going deeper into Henry Lawrence's history and Harriet and also into Leah Ballard's history and Martha and Liz and Annie, like just all of it. It became very clear to me that they are in me, that this isn't just stories about my family. This all happened to actually me, because their DNA makes me who I am. Like literally, their actual bodies live in me. Isn't that kind of a freaky thought? This is the moment when I realized when that really hit me, when I was looking at the indenturing family of Sarah Fortune, who was the Fuchs family or Fook family, depending on which record you're looking at. And I researched the Fook family and the Fooks, they were gentry class. They were in the courts in England. They actually go back to Henry VIII's courts and Henry V. And they were with William the Conqueror in 1066, like right there, his right-hand man as he entered into England and conquered that baby and made it his own, right? So they were right there. And they're most likely in me because their DNA match, they showed up. They were there. So wait a minute. So now I have to contend with, first of all, they would never claim me. (laughs) They would prefer I not even know that I'm part of who they are, right? But they are in me. There's a connection there. And now how do I hold that? So I literally called my aunt and I said, how do I hold this auntie? And she said, you recognize the truth of it. And then you lay it down. You recognize the truth of it. And then you lay it down. And what I recognized was the truth that if that is in me, if they are in me, then a part of my body was there, small part, but it was there in 1066, was there in in Henry V's court, was there when indenturing and raping Sarah, and was there with Sarah's son, Humphrey. He is also in me. And Thomas and Robert and Philip and all of the fortunes and all of the rest are in me. So then I, it, what it does is it makes me accountable to my ancestors. It makes me understand more of who I am because 
they literally laid the ground upon which I walk. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. She is the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to welcome back to the show Lisa Sharon Harper. Longtime listeners will recall that we had her on a few seasons back to talk about her book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Today we're talking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Earlier in our conversation, you made the comment that tracing this lineage from your generation back to your ancestor, Fortune Game McGee, you said, we are the consummate American family. And something that strikes me about that is that what listeners are going to find when they read your book, Fortune, is an elaborate investigation of your own family history, this lost history that was intentionally suppressed or not even recorded. But what strikes me about that is that your story is so many other people's stories, that what you have done could be done for anyone who is coded as African-American in the eyes of the state or who claims African-American or Native American or non-white brown heritage, you know, for whatever reason, they all have some portion of this same story and these same lineages. Now, when I say that, I see you nodding, but I would love for my listeners to hear how that strikes you, that your story is so connected not only to Fortune Game McGee, but to all of the people who are living now whose stories are lost. Well, I think, honestly, I want to say yes, and my story is America's story because my story tells the other side of the story that is normally told and also clarifies the story that is normally told. I was recently talking with with another, with a white man who said, you know, what I was blown away by by fortune is that as you're telling your story, I'm actually remembering my great-grandfather's story. And, you know, he was literally someone who was, uh, who was there, who started the rally cry for the Confederacy in his location. He was on the other side of this history that you are marking when you are taking us through Henry Lawrence's experience of the Civil War, right? So what we don't normally think of is we don't think of American history being lived by people. <laughs> we think of American history as something for us to know versus something that happened to our ancestors right? Like that they had to navigate and they experienced. All of them did in some way, shape or form. All of them did and to some degree, wherever they were in the world. So my experience, what I did was I figured out my ancestors' paths through this history. I got, there was another, honestly, a Bible study that I did that gave me a picture of this in the Bible. There's actually a picture of this kind of a moment in the Bible. Abram and Sarah, right? So the very first time we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah is after the Tower of Babel. So that tells us a little bit of Abraham and Sarah, right? And then it goes into, and there was this war and this king 
says, he's, you know, he tries to exact his power over several other little kings. And then they start this war. And it's literally the very first mention in the entire Bible of the word war. It comes with the, in the same breath as the first mention of the word king. And it's in the context of colonization. We're watching colonization happen in the text. And the only reason this is connected to Abram and Sarah at all is it like they literally, they introduce us to the characters and then they cut back to this larger context, this war that's happening. And then they show us Abraham was there and then he, he went over here. And then that's it. That's the only mention of the war we get. And then now we're following Abraham. So we're seeing that this biblical forefather of the text actually had a context within which we find him. He lived. So I think that was part of what was so striking to me, especially in the earlier chapters of Fortune. Because when I was doing that research, you know, there's only so many details that you can really get on Black lives and brown lives in American history, largely because the goal, white men's goals, or the tactic rather, for securing white male power and entrenching it and protecting it was to obscure our narratives, was to obliterate the narrative of the other and to, in other words, gain dominance over the narrative. Well, how do you do that? You don't write down the other people's narratives. You lie about their narratives. You literally cover it up. So for example, there was an actual, I don't know if he was a government person, I can't remember exactly, or it's census taker, but there was a guy who went through the censuses in Virginia and literally changed the identity of all of the Native American people that had marked themselves as Indian and Virginia and changed them to black or white. He, so he, one person committed genocide, census genocide in Virginia, literally obliterating Native American identity. Why would they do that? Well, they do that because they're building a narrative of white dominance and that's how they're doing it. That's the kind of thing that we came up against. So it makes it all the more amazing to find the little details that we can find, but then it makes it all the more important to understand the context. Because what I found is that context was often text enough for me to understand the choices that led to the rest of their lives. So the choice for Elizabeth to leave South Carolina I don't have any, there's nobody ever mentioned or talked about or documented the conversation she had with her family when she left my grandmother behind in South Carolina. I know the impact of that. I know that my grandmother was deeply scarred and likely raped, we believe, when my great-grandmother left, but she was scarred by that. And it was that scarring that actually then led to what came later in our lives but what I do know is that what's likely the cause is the context that she was living in. She was living in Jim Crow, South Carolina, where Black people were so under the thumb of white law that they couldn't even watch a white person walk by on the porch without being thrown into prison. They couldn't, literally, they couldn't work in any industries except for two industries after this law was passed around the time that Reconstruction ended, they could only work in the fields or in domestic labor. Does that remind you of anything? They were trying to reconstruct slavery, the antebellum South and the post-Reconstruction era. So my great-grandmother said, I am out. I cannot win in this situation. I, I cannot breathe. So she did what she had to do. And what she had to do was to pass 
for white in order to find air in this world. And she was just white enough. She actually was only one eighth black, actually, when you trace it, according to the census. And so when only one eighth black, she could pass for white, but she had to leave her darker children behind, including my grandmother. So what does that do to the family, right? I know the impact of that on my grandmother. I don't know why it happened, as in, I don't know what micro reason that she gave for leaving, but I know the macro, and that was enough. It strikes me that what you're describing here is, in many ways, the work that you do in your organization, Freedom Road. Like the tagline of Freedom Road is closing the narrative gap. And it's, you know, what you're doing here in your book, Fortune, is you are finding all of these narrative gaps and you're doing exactly what you're describing here. You're using context and good research to rebuild the story that has been suppressed. I wonder if you could maybe connect for my listeners a little bit about how what you're doing in Fortune connects to your larger work in your organization. Freedom Road exists to shrink the gap between our narratives. And so we do that through consulting, training, coaching, developing forums that create common understanding, common commitments that lead to common action. So the writing that I do in Fortune does exactly that. The goal is to shrink the gap between our narratives. And when I say that, what I mean is that the gap between the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, who we are and how we got here, because it's become very clear to me that in as the distance between our narratives is the reason why as a nation, we continue to have to fight the same battles in every generation, taking one step forward and three steps back. So if we can shrink that gap, if we can begin to move together with a more common understanding of what happened and how we got here, then maybe we can actually even build common vision for a common future, for a good future for all of us. And when it comes down to it in the very end of the book, you know, actually, I'd love to read the last page. Sure. Because people ask me all the time, what do you hope to accomplish through the book? And I think it's actually said, you know, more clear than I can put it in any other way, that there are two paths set before the oppressed. One path leads to rage, compounded pain, sickness, and death. The other leads to the beloved community. On that road, there is truth-seeking, truth-listening, and truth-telling. There is reparation and equity, and there is mercy, release. For the sake of my body and soul, and the bodies and souls of my family's descendants to the 10th generation from me, I choose the beloved community. Now, for readers in European bodies, you also have a choice. You can continue your war for supremacy against the image of God on earth. You can resist God's beloved community, resist truth, resist equity, resist justice, resist mercy. You can try to maintain your space at the top of a crumbling racial hierarchy. And you won't be there long. You're already in the global minority. Within one generation, you'll be in the minority in the United States as well. And when that day comes, 
You can wage war. Or you can lean into truth. Lean into repentance and repair. And allow yourselves to be released, forgiven. Only then can we find a new way of being together in the world. And I can almost hear my seventh great-grandmother, Fortune Game McGee, who walked in this land 10 generations ago and absorbed the wrath of its first race, gender, and citizenship laws into her traumatized body. And in my mind's ear, I hear her whisper, yes, child, yes. That was my guest, Lisa Sharon Harper, reading from her book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. What strikes me about that last page of your book is it's an invitation to agency. It's an invitation to a choice that you are making, that you're inviting your readers to come along with you. But also, let's be honest, it's an invitation to people like me who have benefited from and who have been a part of the oppression and suppression that you're talking about, to choose differently and to choose beloved community and to join in this truth that you're pointing us to. I think a lot of people are still very invested in not making that choice for whatever reason. And so if my listeners out there you know, are hearing this, I simply want to extend that invitation as well, that beckoning to make the righteous decision to let go of power and to side, as Matthew 25 says, you know, with Christ who is there in the vulnerable and the unwanted, those who have been declared unwanted, those who have been told that their stories don't matter. Well, I do want to say that it's not just an invitation to let go of power I want to respect what you said, but I also want to say it's not really to let go. It's to share. It's to join into the circle of humanity. And let's figure out a new way of being together in the world together. It's a new way of operating in our power. One that recognizes the full humanity of all and the mere humanity of all. Well, and so I wonder now, as we're drawing our conversation to a close, it is clear that this 30-year project was a labor of deep love, both for you and for those who are there in your family. I wonder how it has affected you and what you are now carrying forward, both in hope and maybe also still as obstacles or frustration as you come out of this project into the new world beyond fortune. Well, I mean, honestly, I think it has actually deepened my hope because, you know, you can't go into 10 generations of your family who, that have really literally traversed the American experience and at, at every turn had to overcome laws and structures that were meant for their control and confinement and demise. And yet they found a way to fly over it or through it and not come out with some strategies of resilience. So I think that I gained an understanding of how my ancestors overcame, how my ancestors got through, how they survived those moments. So I feel much better equipped myself to overcome and survive and actually flourish in the midst of oppression. I figured that out by watching and reading their stories. Also, though, I feel frustrated because I hear people of European descent talk about 
how hard it is for them to face these things. And people have said to me, oh, it's such a hard book to read because it's so painful. And I'm just thinking, well, try living it, right? (laughs) Like it's not hard, not that hard to read it. It's harder to live it. But more than that, it's essential for white people to read this. Essential. Why? Because the same energy, the same impetus that has led white men to grab and protect and entrench their own power for the last 500 years is the same power that MLK warned us about in 1967, his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, as he was watching the Watts riots and other riots break out across the country as Black people began once again to be disillusioned because even after the gains of the civil rights movement, the 1964 Civil Rights Act and 65 Voting Rights Act, even then they began to watch the Congress kind of whittle back the promises that they had made in those different acts because of opportunistic politicking. And so they got discouraged and began to burn stuff down. So he, in his prescient, prophetic foretelling, what he said was the segregationist, and we would read today, the white Christian nationalist, would prefer an American form of fascism to democracy. If democracy requires equality. And I submit to you, that is exactly what we are watching happen in our nation today. And that's why this is all so urgent. We are not, it's not a choice about whether or not you're going to read Forging or not. It's a choice about whether or not we're going to find a new way to be together in the world, or are we going to choose a fascist nation? Because our nation is literally on the brink this year in this election of choosing to go the way of the entrenchers, to go the way of the white male power protectors forever, or to find a new way of being together in the world. And you cannot, you cannot find that new way through the politics of dominance. It requires a politics of faith and love and humility. And that's the politics that I find is our remedy in fortune. Well, Lisa Sharon Harper, every time that I get a chance to speak with you, I am just overwhelmed by both the enormity of what you carry, but also the enormity of your hope. And this 30-year project in your book, Fortune, I benefited from reading it. I know my listeners will benefit from reading it. Thank you for going on this journey to find your story. Thank you especially for sharing your story with me and my listeners today. It's been my honor. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. She's a sought-after speaker, trainer, and consultant. She's written several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke to her about that a few seasons back. Today, we've been speaking about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All.
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the program Lisa Sharon Harper. We're talking today about her recent book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.